mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. Now tell me, how are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling adored. And I don't (laughs) mean it in the flippant sense that I (laughs) am really feeling adored. I'm meaning it in the sense that our guest today is adored. Oh, yes. Not only you and I, but Mm. many, many people across the art world and artists and galleries and curators and uh, Collectors. collectors and so many different people. And the reason I chose the word adored is because I've also actually seen other people use that 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 term that they adore our guest but when i looked up the word adoration i it, it, one of the definitions is deep love and respect and i think our guest has deep love and respect a for art but also for artists and he's been a consistent kind of champion over the past five decades because right now is the 50th anniversary of his career and of his sort of support and love of of art we are here to celebrate that 50th anniversary not only us but there's also two exhibitions at the moment one is in new york at our friend jasmine's gallery at jtt gallery and then the other is another friend of ours amy's gallery adams and ullman in portland oregon so we are here to celebrate basically and also to find out about how our guest has helped to highlight and correct the kind of history of art in many ways, because I think there were many conversations about artists that were missing from art history. And I feel like over the past five decades, he has helped fill in gaps and also question why these things were missing, but also just put them into the history, which is a great thing. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, John Allman. Hi, John. <laughs> Hi, how are you guys? Good, how We're are you great. Doing? We are we are over the moon to be talking to you. Where are you in the world, John? I am in Philadelphia, home of the cheesesteak, and uh, it's pouring. It's pouring rain, so that little patter you hear in the background is the the rain happening. Oh. So. Do you, and you say the home of the cheesesteak. Do you like a Philadelphia cheesesteak? Is that a regular like every night dinner for you? Or it is absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I got tired of them many many generations ago. <laughs> Well, it's, it's something to be proud of. Well, we are very proud to be talking to you today, John, because as Rob said in the intro, this is the 50th anniversary of you being a dealer, being an art dealer. And yeah. what is what does that feel like, knowing that you have been in the Fine. game for 50 years? You are art history itself. Well, it makes you feel really old. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, it sort of snuck up on me. I mean, you know, year about 10 years ago, we did a 40th anniversary show, mm. which made me feel quite old. And then this suddenly happened and, you know, I don't, I don't know. It, it's, it's been interesting because, you know, it's just the world has changed. The art world has changed so significantly in that 50 years. And, you know, as much as I'm a student of certain types of art, I'm also very interested in, tr in how things changed, how museums changed, how collections changed. I've, I've, I've sort of, I'm a book, an art book person. I've got thousands of them. Uh, there's whole sections on collectors, collections, how they were formed, uh, starting with my, you know, the great master, Joseph Duveen, mm. who uh, was somebody that I, you know, in a distance, I, re I just respected what he did so much and how he approached what he did. Um, I think a lot of the contemporary art dealers based have based their the way they do, the way that they approach art. Uh, I think Duveen is a key, you know, is a touchstone to that. I know Leo Castelli certainly uh, was influenced by Duveen. And how so. did you first discover Duveen? Oh my God, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> somebody gave me the book. I mean, I, you know, you know what it was. I was I was like looking at books about collections, and his name kept coming up. And then I, I found out about the book that was written in 19, I think it was like 1959. It was a mm -hmm. series of articles that were in the New Yorker mm -hmm. by uh, Berman. I can't remember. Um, anyhow, I, I probably read that book about 10 times. Wow. And I make everybody, I pretty much make everybody that works for me read it too. So. Well, we, we, well um, we should be reading it. So, so Devine, well, we've yeah. got the Devine rooms here, which is at the Tate Britain. So that's obviously named yeah. after this guy that we're talking about now. Well, the Duveen family were longtime dealers in, in, in London and originally in Delft. And then Joseph Duveen saw the, you know, the gold mine at the gold pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And it was New York City in the late 19th century where he saw that there was more money than there was culture. And he decided he was going to bring culture to the, to the provinces as it was. And he literally built the most significant collections in the United States, many of which became the, the foundation for the National Gallery. Um, and he convinced uh, Paul Mellon, you know, to, to put up the money for the National Gallery, give his collection to the National Gallery, and more significantly, not call it the Mellon Gallery, you know, mm -hmm. the, that, be, that it became the National Gallery, uh, Duveen knew would attract other major collections. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that happened in the, like, in the middle of the Depression, I think, uh, or, you know, the 30s, mid-30s or something. So Paul Mellon, Anyhow, Paul Mellon was another big collector at the time. He was the biggest. I mean, he was the one that, uh, Duveen was a strategist. You know, he was always kind of playing games with people. And um, he knew that he'd, he, he hadn't really connected significantly with Paul Mellon. And uh, so Paul Mellon was the Secretary of the Treasury, um, and lived in Washington, D.C. And so Duveen moved to Washington, D.C., got an apartment three or four floors below Mellon's, 
hired Paul Mellon's valet to tell him every time Paul Mellon was leaving his house, <gasps> leaving his apartment, they'd get on the elevator at the same time <gasps> and they'd chat. And then uh, his valet told him that Paul was moving out of the building because he was having the building paint his apartment painted. Now, Duvie knew that he had all this, you know, that he, you know, he was a serious collector, but he'd never really bought anything major from, from Duvine. So he got on the elevator with, you know, with Paul Mellon, as the story goes, and said, oh, I hear you're having to move because of your apartment being painted. But it just so happens I'm moving to London for three months. Why don't you just move into my apartment? Mm -hmm. Where he had filled it with all of these breathtaking masterpieces. Oh, wow. And Paul Mellon apparently never moved out of the apartment. He oh. literally bought the entire collection, oh. which became the core collection for the National Gallery. That is cool. I mean, it's a fa fascinating story. I yeah. mean, Duveen had architects working for him and he convinced these collectors they needed to have a house built. And then Duveen would like get in there and say, I need a wall this big for this painting. I'm going to sell them. And, you know, just, he just literally was a, a master, a mastermind at putting together collections. And um, he sounds, it sounds very kind of, you know, business-like, but in fact, it seemed, it was just, it was like extreme passion about mm. collections and how they, how they were assembled. And I, he never cared that much about money, although he ended up making a lot of money, but his accountants apparently just pulled their hair because he was, you know, he was always buying, you know, something at a ridiculously high price and then selling it to somebody in America for an even more ridiculously high price. So when was this? <clears throat> Is this like the late 1800s? Uh, I was early, the late, yeah, really late 1800s, but more early like, like more in the early 19, 1900s. Yeah. Wow. So the psychology so, of collectors for you feels like it's a fascination. Like you say you collect well, books yourself, but it feels like something that really kind of like why people collect. As a dealer, that's well, really fascinating. Well, it is. Fa I mean, it's fascinating. I, I mean, like all great dealers are collectors. I mean, yeah. that's just a given, right? <laughs> Um, and so, you know, we used to, I used to think it would be great if I had a, you know, a side degree in, in you know, in psychology, yes. uh, because it, you know, it's, you're always, you're always involved in these strange relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're not, you're sort of friends, but you're not really friends, particularly with the ones that you've spent a great deal of time with. Um, but you know, there's always this weird wall between you and, and them in some ways. So, but yeah, anyhow, <laughs> that's, yeah, a, true. that's a really, whole nother conversation. It is. Yeah. But that's actually yeah. very, very true. Yeah. Well, so, let, so let's get back to how you got into this world that you're in, John. So you were saying that was, we're talking about your 50th anniversary now, but I've read that as a kid, you knew as a child that art was the only interest that you had, much to your parents' <laughs> oh dismay. God. They were like, what is going on? But you knew, you knew as a kid that, that this is the route you was going to take. How were you so sure what, of it? What, wait, first, what were you reading? <laughs> where'd, you, where'd you read that? I don't know. I mean, I know that. Um, I was. I knew from the time I was like three or four years old that art was was a passion. I mean... All I wanted to do was draw. Uh, I couldn't get anybody in my family at all interested in it. Um, there was a point, I think, well, I, in high school, I was able to major in art. I was like, like extremely dyslexic. So I was a terrible reader. 
uh, terrible at math, terrible at sports, all of those things that my older brother was very good at, I was not good at, but I was really good at art. And um, so I kind of, I didn't think about it as a career. It wasn't like really something you really thought about when you're growing up in the Midwest in a small town. Um, then I, w I went off to college at a regular college, majored in art, but failed all the rest of the stuff. So it kind of got uh, flunked out of college the first time around. Wow. <laughs> and then my parents moved to Philadelphia and I found out about art school uh, because uh, somebody in my in my parents' neighborhood told me about Philadelphia College of Art. And so I just went down there and I applied to get in and I got in and excelled. And I thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'll grow up, I'll be a teacher, I'll teach art. That's a legitimate thing you can do. Mm. And freshman year, I had this really amazing instructor, and she just said, "You're not, you're not majoring in education. You're majoring in sculpture," and that was it. I was just like, I became a sculpture major, and wow. that, and I, I mean, it was pretty. I was really quite facile with uh, making things, um, and I, you know, I got a, a BFA in sculpture from Philadelphia College of Art, which is now University of the Arts. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they pushed me to go to Indiana University for graduate school. Uh, there were like three acceptable schools for sculpture majors back in the 60s. Um, and Indiana was one and they had the most money and they literally free ride, uh, all you know, tuition, housing, uh, teaching fellowship. It was like, it was pretty easy. And it was there that I really, <clears throat> I mean, I had always, at Philadelphia College of Art, we always had a semester of art history every semester. So I had eight semesters of art history coming out of Philadelphia College of Art. And then another four semesters at Indiana University where there were incredible instructors. Roy Sieber, who's a great uh, African scholar was there. Uh, so I started learning about African art. Um, I had a great photography teacher named Henry Holmes Smith, who was part of the the Bauhaus originally. Wow. And he, I took photography classes from him with all these people majoring, you know, getting their master's in photography. And for four semesters, I never took one single photograph. <laughs> I did I did crazy ass uh, sort of Peter Blake-ish type collages. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And sculpture, I was like, I was obviously not, I was not feeling it. I mean, I was, I, you know, my interest in art history was very much surrealism. I was kind of obsessed with Noguchi's uh, designs for parks. And um, that led me to Topiary, where I wrote my master's thesis on Topiary gardening. Really? Much much to the horror of my advisors. Oh my God. And I, but like as an I graduated. Like cutting, cutting bushes as into shapes art, as an art form, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, I, I totally, I'm so obsessed with topiary. Are you? Uh, still to this day, I am obsessed with, oh, yeah. So do you do, you, do, you do that I, I, yourself as a sculptor? Like, do you see that as part of your sculpture practice? Uh, I do a little tiny bit in Maine. Not, but I'm way too impatient to do like major topiary sculpting. Um, but I love it. And I mean, I'm like, a, I don't know, I've sub subscribed to Gardens Illustrated probably for like 30 years. That is so you know? cool. Um, oh, yeah, wow. so 
That's that's my uh, that's my uh, sculpture background. After I graduated from Indiana University, I never never made another piece of sculpture, and came back to Philadelphia, and was out of work. I thought I I I, I ultimately got a job teaching sculpture at Philadelphia College of Art, and within a week I knew it was the biggest mistake I'd ever made in my life. I hated it every single day. And at the same time, I got the job at the gallery. So fall of 1970, uh, I started working at the gallery as kind of a, uh, it was, it was full time, but I was just like sort of like the, the kind of gopher at the gallery and Janet Fleischer, who was an amazing woman, uh, who started the gallery in 1952 with an, actually with a folk art show, uh, this crazy artist named Samuel Granite. Mm. Um, she kept saying, oh, you need to sell things. You need to sell things. And they showed junk, real, really junky stuff. <laughs> and I was like, I can't, I can't, I, you know, I just, I don't believe in this stuff and I can't sell it. And, you know, a few months after that, she like shows up in the gallery and she's got this huge, Oceanic Sculpture Show, right? This is 1971. Mm. No one was showing Oceanic Sculpture. And the show was curated by this woman named Bobby Nockhamson. And you may know Bobby Nockhamson because she is Roberta Entwistle in London. Oh, wow. <laughs> but she used to live in New York and she was see. Bobby Nockhamson. And she was really good friends with Michael Rockefeller. And they, so the Oceanic material that we were getting was just stupendous. And I made Janet a bet. They had had a sale of all this like junk from the basement. And I bet her that I could sell more oceanic sculpture than they had been able to sell of this material that was like half price. Uh -huh. And this incredible woman came into the gallery and she bought the whole exhibition from me and won wow. you the bet and i won and i won i won the bet <laughs> well a, cu a couple of things and, uh, in what is oceanic sculpture like can you describe that for people listening uh oceanic sculpture well it's 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 the art of from new guinea mm -hmm. uh mostly we were dealing with the sepik river which there's like 700 different cultures on the sepik river so it's hard to say exactly what one thing's going to look like the other um they're totemic, uh, they're slightly, they're different from African, but they're spiritually based, um, mostly wood carvings, although there's some incredible ceramics that they did in, in one culture and some beautiful woven masks uh, in the other. Uh, that's the Sepik River Valley. Then there's a, the, the Azmet uh, sculpture, which if you're at the Met, there's a whole room of it at the Met, uh, the sort of large totemic figures um how old that, is it um, how old are these works well they're they're you know what we see is not that old i mean just because the you know it it wasn't really collected that early um so late 19th century is about the earliest work oh. you're going to see but mm. much of what you really see is like started really around world war ii when when Western cultures were more embedded in uh, New Guinea. Right. So when she turned up with this work, you were fully aware of this art form? Well, I, I had, I had no, I really, I mean, I'd had some, 
I had had some history with African work, right. so it, it it certainly paralleled that. Uh, but it was it was nineteen it was the early nineteen seventies. I was really not interested in what was happening in New York. Um, it was very, you know, um, minimal and conceptual and um, certainly not topiary. Um, <laughs> and um, I it it really 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 resonated with the sur the surrealists and a lot of the surrealists collected oceanic sculpture mm. uh as much as they collected african sculpture probably more oceanic um anyhow it was uh, i i just knew from from the fact you know from seeing it that it was like the the real thing right mm -hmm. and that sort of started us off i so i won this bet which was supposed to be lunch uh, which was pretty brazen of somebody who couldn't afford lunch to take <laughs> Janet Fleischer to lunch. Um, and so she took me to lunch. I won the bet. And at the lunch, she turned the gallery over to me, so basically cool. made me the director. I said, well, what about the woman who's the director? He, she said, I'll take care of that. <laughs> she must have hated you. <laughs> huh? She must have hated you. She did. <laughs> Around this time, you were about 26, I think. And I heard that you actually wrote a note to Janet. Because um, in the JTT show, um, Jasmine's written this beautiful essay about her connection to you. But she actually yeah. refers to a talk that you gave that she, when she first met you. And you, you referred to this note. Can you tell us about the note? Well, I, I, was, I wasn't that close to my parents. But um, I was out of work. And um, I think they were concerned because I was at, at that time I was married. We had a young kid uh, oh. and my former wife had a child from her first marriage. And um, my father stopped by our house and our apartment and he said, oh, I just ripped this advertisement out of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Somebody's looking for a gallery, somebody to work in a gallery. And so I wrote this, I hand wrote this note to Janet, uh, to dear sirs, I had no idea it was Janet, right? And um, basically it's about, you know, it's, it's about half a page and it's totally stupid and embarrassing. And um, so I sent it and I got the job. And then 25 years later, Janet was a bit of a hoarder. 25 years later, on the 25th anniversary of my being at the gallery, Janet hands me this wrap, this box with wrapped up box as a present. And in the box is the framed note. Oh. She's kept this note for 25 years. I still have it. It's hilarious. Um, anyhow, we had that in the 40th anniversary show. That was where Jasmine saw it. So good. Uh, she, she actually came to that. I gave a lecture, lecture. It's just, uh, I gave a talk. Um, lecture sounds highfalutin. Um, <laughs> I gave a talk and uh, Jasmine. So a Amy was friends with Jonathan Berger. Do you guys know Jonathan Berger? Yes. So Amy was for Amy, Jonathan had done some projects in Philadelphia and he was actually teaching at what is now University of the Arts. And so we'd done some things with Jonathan and Jonathan told Jasmine about, I think about me and that I was doing this talk and she came down, it was her birthday, and she, she it was like, it was the, all these like numerical things that like made it seem like just the right, uh, the right thing to have happened. And she went back and basically um, 
Matthew Higgs said, oh, you should open a gallery. You know, you, you can come to NADA. And Jasmine called me and said, oh, my God, I'm going to do this. I don't have a gallery, but I'm going to do this space at NADA. And, and can you give me Bill Walton's work? And, and so we gave her Bill Walton and Wireman. And I think she also showed Bob Miser mm -hmm. and maybe uh, Elaine Cameron Ware mm -hmm. in this like little tiny booth and sold, I, I think she sold seven Bill Waltons. Um, and it basically financed her first gallery. Wow. So. Well, I want to get onto these artists that you just mentioned because a lot of people listening won't know who they are. But let's talk about the gallery space itself. When did you feel like you were really putting your stamp on it? Because what Rob was saying in the beginning, the introduction, is that you're uh, a gallerist that's been trying to break down the walls that exist between the high and low and making sure that we recognize that the artists that are creating like self-taught art and you know out, outliers or outsider artists which is a problematic term which we can get onto as well <laughs> are no different from any other art form or the artist that produced it that's kind of like your mantra right so how did you start to put this stamp on the gallery and bringing these artists into the roster and into the public uh, kind of well, vision I, I i actually made a list of some of the shows but um it's you know really i, I have to give a lot of credit to janet fleischer first and foremost, because it was her gallery and she literally turned it over to me. And, um, and in, in, in so many ways, I mean, she financed this ridiculous stuff that we were doing. I mean, you have to understand back in 1971, nobody was showing this material, nor did they like it. Um, we, exactly. we had a show for Sister Gertrude Morgan in 1971. We, we sold zero works we sold well we sold two one to me and one to a friend of mine right and they were 20 <laughs> they were 25 dollars right um oh my God. we what's the work like sister gertrude morgan she was a street gospel singer in new orleans and she was discovered by or promoted by rod McEwen back in the 70s and they're mm -hmm. all about her marriage to christ and uh you know they're it, it's this sort of southern baptist uh, aberration religion that's they're they're all about sort of her marriage to christ or god and the angels of you know like in new jerusalem and you know on and on um they, they were pretty they're pretty intense and she's come in and out of favor probably three or four times in the last 50 years mm -hmm. um uh -huh. we you know so janet literally let me do this right and we did Oh, gosh, uh, the Oceanic Sculpture Show. Uh, I became the director in 71. Uh, we, I found out about this huge pre-Columbian Peruvian show, a uh, Peruvian collection that was coming up for sale. I talked Janet into buying it. It was like 1,500 pieces of every, every culture from Chavin to, uh, to, to Inca, including textiles and jewelry and I mean, it was amazing. And we, it was the guy, it was the curate, pretty much a, he, he pretty much managed to assemble the, the major collection that's at the Met, which is called uh, the Nathan Cummins collection. And this was his own personal collection. So we got the collection and we got the collector and he came to Philadelphia and I got a crash course in pre-Columbian Peruvian art. A few years later, I, got, I taught one year at, Philadelphia College of Art Sculpture, which I said I would never teach again. 
in early 80s, they asked, asked me to come back as an art history teacher. Uh, and it was, a, it was a, a, I mean, it was like early 80s. It was like all of the artists were stealing that imagery anyhow. Uh, and I, you know, so I was just like, you know, you guys need to know where it's coming from and what it's about if you're going to use these images in your work. And so I said I'd teach it for as long as I didn't get bored and that no faculty member interfered with what I was doing. I didn't give up. I gave basically everybody got an A if they came to class. <laughs> it took a lot to fail my class. What, what, what is specifically about teaching then that you kind of dislike? Um. I, I really like one-on-one -on -one conversations uh, in terms of art history teaching. In terms of teaching sculpture, it was like, I felt like I was uh, being, you know, like I was being eaten by vampire bats. I don't know. Wow, it was just intense. like, <laughs> they, sucking, you know, <laughs> sucking the life out of you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, I, I had no idea. I had no, I, I could never figure out why they were there, you know? They want. They basically wanted you to tell them what was right and what was wrong. And I don't. I don't think that way. You know. I don't really think anything's particularly right or wrong. You know. I think it is what it is. What it is. And you know, some people are going to like it, and some people aren't. Mm, right. So, so how uh, how would you compare like being a curator and a gallerist and putting on exhibitions, and in the sense that you've shown a lot of art that like like you were talking about that show with Sister Gertrude, like people weren't interested in. So in a way that you are kind of teaching people in a sense. So how how, how do you align you know that that kind of thing with with the role that you then took in a gallery world? Well, I think one of the things that that a lot of people today don't really understand was what was really what it was really like to show this material back in the 70s mm. and the 80s yeah. and even into the 90s i mean there was virtually no collectors uh most people hated it uh and they're perfectly happy to share that information with you yeah. um and so it it was it was very different it wasn't like so you could kind of do whatever you wanted to do so curating was like i you know i just do whatever shows i wanted to do and so we started working once. I mean, one, there were some great, great, funny stories. But I remember we we first started working with Bert Hempel, who did the, that sort of pivotal book called uh, 20th Century Folk Art and Artists in mm -hmm. 1971 or 72. I think we first did a show with him in 77. And he was like an art hoarder. I, in his apartment was like insane. I've never seen anything like it. You couldn't negotiate your way through his apartment. I mean, there was no place to sit down. There was no, I mean, I said, where do you sleep? He goes, oh, I sleep at a friend's house. <laughs> you oh, know, like oh. every bed, every surface was covered with stuff. There were piles of art in the center of the room that sort of went up to and joined stuff hanging from the ceiling. It was crazy wow. insane. Oh, wow. And he, he introduced us to Howard Finster in 1977. Yes. And we showed Howard Finster in 1977. Oh. I can't, really explain how radical Howard Finster's work was in 1977. It was very, it was like folk art. It was still being called folk art. Most of the people were interested in nostalgia painting, right? Mm -hmm. Grandma Moses would be like the quintessential example of that. Yes. Uh, but there were lots and lots of other artists who were painting nostalgia paintings, right? And that's what people wanted, right? I mean, that's what they thought folk art was and should be. Mm -hmm. Howard Finster was not that, right? And 
I remember hanging the Howard Finsters and thinking, holy crap, what, who, who is this? What is this? Why am I looking at it? Why is it intriguing me so much? Uh, it was in the, the, we also had Inez Nathaniel Walker in that show, who was another artist. I was just like, this, this is so unbelievably different, right? And I knew what I was doing. I, I, I would like, somebody would come in, I'd try to talk them into buying it, right? And it was, I wasn't trying to talk that person into buying. I was trying to sell it to myself, right? Mm. And I did this, I did this over and over again because I was the, I was the biggest client, right? I was, <laughs> I was that, that's who bought it, right? And, um, there, I remember we had this incredible Howard Finster in that show. And I was by two or three weeks into the show, I was obsessed with this painting, you know, and I knew no one was going to buy it. It was going to be mine. And this guy comes in and I'm telling him all about this painting. And he says, I'll take it. And I was crushed. I was absolutely crushed. I mean, I sold it to him, but I was crushed. <laughs> and it took me years before I was ever able to buy another Howard Finster painting. And it took me actually going to Howard Finster's Paradise Garden, meeting with him. Um, I did a, you know, I did this really major show for him. It was his first museum show, really, with a catalog which was terrifying. I had to write the essay and being dyslexic, you would understand how difficult that was. Um, and so we brought Howard to Philadelphia and I got him a gig at the fabric workshop and museum. Uh, and I got him an interview with Terry Gross on NPR. Well, I don't know if you've ever heard Howard Finster talk, but he was a hardcore evangelical uh, preacher with a, uh, with a, you know, with a, uh, with a, you know, with a audience of one, basically. I mean, nobody came to his church. And I, so I said, to, I said to Terry to go look at the show. And if she had questions, she should talk to me because before she interviewed him, because he could, you could set him off, right? It was, if you said the wrong thing to him, he would respond. And so she was like busy, she didn't do it, and she had him on the show. And we were all in the gallery listening on NPR as Terry is interviewing him, and she says something to him, and he goes off on the infidels and how they crucified Jesus. Oh, wow. And I mean, it got really, really intense, and I thought, oh my God. I'm going to get the, I'm the person that's going to get Terry Gross fired. <laughs> I was like horrified, right? And um, nobody even called in and complained. And it was like one of the, one of the most outrageous interviews I have ever heard on the wow. radio. So, so Howard Finster yeah, that, was a Baptist minister from Georgia and, and people might recognize the work because he did work that was on the cover of R.E.M., an album by R.E.M. and an album by Talking Heads. And he became mm. quite famous in his lifetime, but he was also just focused on his religious outreach. It felt like he wasn't no. really interested in the art and you were doing that side of everything. Well, the art, you know, he, you know, he, although he called himself an artist and he said he started making art in 1976. I think he said that just because it was the bicentennial year, but right. and that he actually started earlier than that. But the art originally were just, they're really sermons that he would hang in the trees in his in Paradise Garden. And I don't know if you've ever seen photos of Paradise Garden. I went there in the middle of the winter. It was 
really scary. Um, so can you kind of explain what a, Paradise Garden is for the listeners? So this is in Somerville, uh, Georgia. Paradise Garden was uh, this two-acre plot where he lived in Somerville, Georgia. And everybody, you know, all, I always saw these photos of it. And I thought, oh, it's just out in the you know, out in the boondocks someplace. But in fact, it was in the middle of a neighborhood. I mean, he had neighbors on all sides. And he built this garden because God told him to do it. And it's like concrete and, you know, shells of old automobiles that he painted and uh, all with sermons because he believed and he never slept. Uh, he was, it was really hard dealing with him, but he took these little like cat naps, right? And he would have these naps and then he would wake up and they would be, that would have been a vision from God. And he'd write them down, these visions down on these three by five note cards. And then he would do a painting of that vision. And so they're all sermons basically interpreted by him. I mean, they, they don't, they're not really that connected with like any kind of formalized religion that you, you know, that you would, you know, recognize mm. it really is sort of off the rails stuff. But and then since he died, it's now become a public park, and you can actually go there, can't you? I think it's yeah. I think it was. Public. I think I think some people helped the High Museum acquire it. It's out, you know, it's 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 about sixty minutes north of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, but all the but all the guts of it is are gone. I mean, you know, there were paintings in the trees. There were like. Uh, there was this huge garage that he kind of made into a church that looks like a big old wedding cake that's about four stories tall, surrounded with cutout figures mm -hmm. of, you know, people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln and um, all the really popular guys in the northern Georgia. Right, <laughs> you right, know, right. His, neighbor, his neighbors used to shoot at him. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh, yeah. But there was a until, he was on, until he was on the cover of Life magazine and then he became a sort of a local hero. Wow. But there was like 46,000 works at one point that was all there in this paradise garden he created. Yeah. Uh, the original garden, I would say, probably didn't have more than 2,000 pieces right. in it. The massive amount of work that he made occurs after uh, the, the David Byrne era. So 84, from 84 on, he starts really mass producing stuff, which... He was obsessed. I mean, he he was obsessed with mass production. He loved it. I mean, he is one of his great heroes was Henry Ford, and he dedicates right. a lot of work to Henry Ford because Henry Ford showed him how to do mass production. So he was mass producing the Word of God. You know, yeah. that was that was well, that's the basics. Well, there's a quote about yeah. it because the REM album sold uh, two and a half million uh, albums in the first uh, two and a half months, and he said that. His approach to it was, he said, I think there's 26 religious verses on that first cover I done for them. They sold a million records in the first two and a half months. So that's tw 26 million verses I got into the world in two and a half months. And for him, that was kind of <laughs> the way. Very proud. He was very proud of that stuff. Right. He was very proud of it. It's awesome. Um, He's anyhow, we, in the true sense of the word. Yeah, right. Um, so then we went on and we did, you know, we, I was sort of open to pretty much you know, anything that was sort of out of out of the mainstream. So in 82, we did a Zimbabwe sculpture show, uh, which featured the work of Henry Munyaradzi. Munyaradzi, okay. right. So do you, are you familiar with Magicians de la Terre? No. no. 
Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it's like, like the most important show ever. So I'm obsessed also with exhibitions that I think are really game changing exhibitions. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, one of the earliest ones I think was the sort of abstract, uh, abstract, other uh, spiritual, what is it? Spiritual painting? What's it called? The Spiritual in Art, Abstract Painting, 1890 to 1985. Mm-hmm. So that was, I saw that show in 19. 19- 86 in Chicago, but it was curated by Morris Tuckman for LACMA in, in LA. And it was an amazing, amazing show. And that was the show where I first saw Hilma off Klimt's work oh, wow. and realized that, you know, like there, this was really, you know, that it wasn't just the self-taught work that we were dealing with, but there was this whole other range of sort of spiritualism in painting. Um, that was followed up by Maurice Tuckman's Parallel Vision show a few mm-hmm. years later, which was pairing up European mainstream artists with the self-taught that they collected, as well as American artists paired up with the self-taught art that they collected. So it was like Americans were like Jim Nutt and Gladys Nielsen and Ray Yoshida and, uh, and you know, all, all of that Chicago imagist material and those people. Um Anyhow, in 88, I think, was Musicians de la Terre. Oh, yes, it was 1989. In 1989. In the Centre so, Yeah, well, it was actually the whole city of Paris. I mean, there were, wow. there were installations in train station. I mean, there, there were things all over, the, all over Paris. Um, the catalog is an absolute must-have. So the... The, the show was totally panned. Everyone hated it. Uh, it was the, the 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 concept was they divided the world up into four quadrants, and there were curators from each quadrant, and they brought in tra- trained and formally trained and otherly trained. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't consider like African art not to be trained. I mean, those are those are guilds. People grow up learning how to do that. Uh, so do so do like the you know people like uh, Henry or the Aboriginal you know the Aboriginal dream painters. That's that's all a passed on you know legacies. Yes. So, but this pair this show had fifty uh, sort of formally trained artists paired up with about fifty on uh, on you know artists from other training, sort of non-Western, let's say non-Western training. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. And um, I, I just, it was a book I always went to and I was thinking about artists and, and it's now many of the, many of the otherly trained artists in that, in that uh, show have become, you know, world known at this point. I mean, Henry certainly is one, um, Bodas Kingleys, who just had a show, one-person show at MoMA. Mm-hmm. Um, Kosi, who did these African carvings that sort of fused sort of Islam with a more traditional African style of carving. Kane Kawi, who you might know, who did the, he was famous for doing the caskets in the form of Mercedes Benzes. Oh, and, yes. Yeah, they're incredible. Um 
And Viacool, the uh, tantric artist, who I think is fantastic. So. John, why do you think you you found the affinity for these otherly trained artists, for these uh, outlier artists, art brutes, for like there's and there's lots of terms like there is naive art, visionary art, folk art. Why why do you have an affinity, and why why are you such a champion for these art movements? Well, we used to back you know years ago when all of these names these. Uh, titles were being tossed around we a friend of mine came up with uh, he said oh it's it's term warfare uh-huh. you know everybody was trying <laughs> to prove that their term was better than the other person right. and it was i think it was about that time it was sort of the mid 80s i was just like you know what the hell they're just art they're artists let's just call them artists why do we have to why do we have to put them in parentheses and say outsider self-taught naive visionary i mean Aren't all artists that in some way? Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, like an artist is an artist and that's the way they should be treated. And it was about that time that we started like doing, stop doing encyclopedic based shows and theme based shows and doing one person shows. Mm -hmm. And so it was just like William Edmondson, Frank Jones, Joseph Yocum, James Castle. I mean, that's what I prefer. And, you know, and I think, you know, like we have this big discussion because I, you know, I have, I suggested to to Ann Percy, who curated the first major museum show on, <clears throat> on James Castle uh, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. There, there was a whole discussion about putting, you know, self-taught or outsider on the catalog cover, and I said, no, you that is so disrespectful. You know, it should just say like you would with any other artist. Mm-hmm. James Castle, a retrospective. Mm-hmm. And that's what ultimately won out. But you know, but the biggest the biggest pressure on that was coming from the book distributors because they were like, well, no one's going to buy the book if you don't put outsider on it. Right. And I was like, th- that is just it just perpetuates this nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. And particularly I think, in book form, because then it's there forever. And you know, yeah, it's there, right. the exhibition. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's great. it's crazy. Anyhow, so we started doing that, doing artists, you know, art artists you know by name and mm. i'm very proud of that and um i th- i think russell getting back to your question it's like i think as somebody who was trained as an artist i look at what compels people to make things right and i think the initial retract you know the i think the initial attraction to this uh, area was that, that it wasn't for commercial reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, they were making work because it was their voice. You know, it was how they how they got the world to to listen to them. And uh, one of my friends, Cav- uh, Randall Morris, said started describing the African American material as the visual blues. You know, it was their way of speaking because they weren't heard. And they it's they're not outsiders. Just, uh, Bill Trailer's not an outsider. He's very much a part of a community mm. and he represents his community through his work. And mm. that work, if you look back at African art, back, you know, like there are some there are some trailer drawings that you could like put in some of the caves in West Africa that date back to you know, 4,000 BC, right? And you'll see the same kinds of markings. I mean, and most people don't recognize them on a, on the 
Bill Trailer work, but if you look at the cover of the Black Folk Art Show, there's that beautiful snake drawing, but there's also like five lines that seem to have no particular relationship to the drawing. But in those caves in West Africa, you see these series of lines mm. that appear in in Bill Trailer's work occasionally. So there's 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 I think there's I don't I don't know how to qualify it, but it's there's something there that he's pulling out. And you have to, and because he's so close in terms of the history of where he came from and um that he's brought more of that into his work. And I think one of the books that's really important to read to understand this is Robert Ferris Thompson's Flash of the Spirit. And Robert Ferris Thompson really goes deep into where this information in this, you know, African-based American art is coming from. And there, there's history to it, like why, why certain colors are used why certain gestures are used, what those gestures mean, what those colors mean. And it's just, you know, it's just because as a culture, we're really lazy uh, in finding out what that is, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think that's, I think that's why I really sort of became like artist, 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 artist. I mean, I even, I was so obsessed with it, I dropped out of the outsider art fair for Because of the term, reason. because of the defined definition yeah. of style, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, and I know. ultimately, you know, it started like, oh, cut your nose off despite your face kind of thing, right? <laughs> All these collectors stopped buying from us because of it, um, which was okay. I mean, for I mean, it, it didn't make that big a difference. But we ultimately went back. I didn't like the guy who who organized the fair. It was sort of a circus. And then Andrew Edlin took it over, and it became way, way more serious. Uh, so I, I, I came back. You know, it's really interesting hearing you talk so passionately there about when you made that decision to make each exhibition just the name of the artist to sort of give them the respect they're due in a way. But like, if you think about the whole of your career over these five decades, um, to me, it's so inspiring because I, I obviously am a gallerist now for the past uh, 10, 11 years. And like, I think it is very much a way of life. And if you think about the time, you know, 50 years ago when people weren't taking it seriously, weren't buying from you, was there a kind of rebellious, like mischievous kind of element to it alongside your, your passion and your enthusiasm? Like, was it, was it an enjoyable life to, to, to live? Of course, it was. of course there was. I had a story. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I will. <laughs> So we had a, I did this one show, I think it was called Artists in Institutions, right? And it was Inez Nathaniel, um, Frank Jones, mm -hmm. and Martine Ramirez. And it was probably the mid, uh, early, mid 80s. Uh, you know, most people really didn't pay attention to the work or to what we were doing. Um, and I had this, everybody who knows me knows that I do this. I talk to pretty much anybody that comes to the gallery <laughs> and whether they, want it, whether they want to be talked to or not. Yeah. And um, so I was sitting in my, at my desk and there was this very sort of main line, you know, upper class woman had walked into the gallery and she's like looking around and I try to catch her. I was not, she's not having it. Finally, she just like, comes over and she says, I'm, I'm sitting at the desk, right? And she says, do you work here? And I go, yes. And she goes, what is this stuff? I said, it's art. And she said, 
Art, it looks like it's from the loony bin. I said, well, some of it is from the loony bin. And she goes, well, I volunteer in a loony bin and we throw junk like this out every single day. And I said, well, Matt, and she said, are you selling these? I said, yes. She said, well, how much is this? She pointed to a Ramirez. This will tell you how long ago it was. It was $2,500. I, I said, yes, that's $2,500. And she said, well, we throw junk like this out every single day. And I said, madam, that's why this is $2,500. And she was like, Hoffy and stomped on the gallery. Never saw her again. Oh my God. Wow. But this, and this oh Martin God. Ramirez work now sells for a fortune. He's seen as like a, a master. Yeah. I mean, that drawing today would probably be $150,000. Wow. <laughs> and you had so many people at the time you were trying to convince to collect. And then when it all went off, they were like saying to you, then why didn't you tell me to try and buy this work? And you were like, I tried. I had this one collector who when we started when we started showing James Castle I started I called people and I, like James Castle it's 90 our first show was 1998 it was the first show on the east coast and I did a catalog at that time called uh, silent voices I think and um by that time um I had what 98 this is 28 years of doing this right and I had this this one collector came in and he said, "What what should I buy?" I said, "Well, you have to buy James Castle. I mean, they're, they're absolutely spectacular." And he he bought a lot of them because he said to me that he was so mad at me that I had never made him buy Bill Trailer when they were one hundred and fifty dollars. Wow! And I I said, "Well, I." I tried to get you to buy them when they were that <laughs> price. You just wouldn't do it, right? So buy Castle, you know, make up for it. And he did. But he's still never forgiven me for not wow. making him buy Bill Trailer. Well, we're talking about so many artists now, but I want to go back to Martin Ramirez, who spent most of his adult life in a mental hospital, and you, and you like, were championing his art. But he ended up being on U.S. postal stamps uh, after his death, right? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. You're not? Why, why is that? Because it's it's sort of an appropriation of work after the fact. And, you know, I, I just, it wasn't meant to be on stamps. Right. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it feels a little, uh, I'm not going to say, it's meant to be respectful, but ultimately I feel it's a little disrespectful. Right, right, right. I, but that's me. That's me. No, no, I'm, I can I'm absolutely just, see. I'm a point. weird dude. Well, I think, but like the genesis of his journey from where he came from and the artwork and to the point where he gets chosen and selected to be on public stamps is an incredible um, kind of narrative, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but why not choose him to have a one person retrospective at the National Gallery instead? Yeah, mm. yeah, I hear you. Great. I mean, that's really, to me, is what should happen. I mean, it's happened for trailer, uh, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, it's starting to happen. More happens for Castle. Uh, of course, you know, uh, he had that huge show. I mean, the the only one-person show at a museum that I can think of is Lynn Cook's show at the Reina Sofia. Um, I don't think any – oh, well, Mer the Museum of American Folk Art, but I'm, I'm not a – I'm not a huge a huge fan of ghettoizing the material. I really prefer seeing it in, you know, in dialogue with regular, yeah. you know, like in yeah, dialogue with like this is an artist who belongs in 
the, the Met or MoMA or, mm. you know, the National Gallery or wherever. But, um, and, you know, to, you know, obviously I think the Museum of American Folk Art and other museums like that serve a bit of a function, mm. but I would like to see these artists be more respectfully treated. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Bill Trailer then for people that are listening that won't know his work. But he's he is again the superstar of um, folk art, right? Would he be that be his label for the for his practice? He's a superstar artist. Yes. Okay, um, and he is because his work is about pure essence and an incredible passion for you know, for making his voice heard in very difficult situations. Um, And, you know, he's African-American, was born a slave, uh, ended up living on the streets of Montgomery, Alabama, where he scrounged for materials and gave us this incredible narrative. And, um, you know, I like to think of Bill Trailer's work as a single work of art, that they all seem they all are really connected to one another and they're telling this huge sort of epic narrative and um yeah he's he's really famous he fills a lot of uh, fills in a lot of check boxes for lots of museums black slave uh you know they're 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 using him to sort of reset their, you know, their all-white male um, mm. histories, so. How did you come across that work? And they would, they would I mean, these are, these are works that sell for <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars as well. Uh, well, we've been selling, we've been showing and selling self-taught since 1970. I worked closely with Phyllis Kine Gallery in Chicago, and, but I didn't work with Phyllis. I worked with her director, Karen Lennox, and Karen had just left Phyllis and was, about to open a gallery, her own gallery. And she said, oh, there's this artist. I know you're just going to love him. I'm going to send you a box full. And this box arrived and they were literally stacked one on top of the other, you know. And I opened the box and I was like, oh my God, these, this is so fabulous. I bought the first one I saw. We showed them about three months later, the Black Folk Art Show opened. Trailer was on the cover of that catalog. Um, the prices went from ridiculous, I mean, they were $150 to $300. By the end of the show run at the Corcoran, they'd gone up to about six or $700. That, that Corcoran show then went on a sort of a road trip and it went to like eight museums in the United States. And I think it even went, was sort of reformulated and went to Europe, um, got reviewed at least twice in the New York Times, I think. Uh, and it suddenly, suddenly people who were not willing to spend $150 for a trailer drawing were willing to spend $1,200 for one because suddenly now it was art. You know, you know, it was, it had, it had real value. It had been endorsed or something. Yeah. Right. But it was still really hard. I mean, there, there were still not that many people buying it. And I remember, one year at um, Chicago Art Fair when we were first doing art fairs in 88 or 89. And, uh, you know, one of the things we'd do is we'd kind of always rush over to see what Karsten Grav was showing. And I remember his booth to this day, it had like um, Giannis Canellis, 
these huge big Janus Canal sculptures, a whole installation of Joseph Cornell, another one of my favorite self-taught artists. Um, and the outside wall was salon hung with Bill Trailer. And we knew we'd been selling Bill Trailer to somebody in Europe, but through an agent, and we had no idea who it was. And it was Karsten Kraft. And I had a whole bunch in my booth as well. And I just rushed back to my booth and I just marked them all sold. <laughs> because ours were, I think ours were maybe 25% of the price that his were. Wow. And these sell for and hundreds I, of thousands of dollars now. They do. Yeah. Five, uh, some have gotten up to the almost three quarters of a million price range. Wow. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's magic. We had some here in Margate recently in the We Will Walk show. And um, I think there were two of his works, but they were so tiny. But they're just amazing. And they were my favorite thing they're in the powerful. whole show. That they're, they're so like intense and kind of like you can really imagine being there with that yeah. you know, animal I mean, that he's drawn or... There are very few large, I mean, there are very few large scale ones. I mean, generally the largest ones are 12 by uh, 14 by 20. And they're in the backs of these incredible posters. And I, I'm the only person who's obsessed with the backs, I think. Uh, but he painted on like this, like African-American memorabilia. Like I had this one horse They actually just sold at Phillips for a ridiculously low price. The back of that drawing was a poster for the four ink spots and it had this big splash of ink from him on the back of it and i liked the back almost as much as i liked the front right and, and i see a 14 by 20 inch bill trailer and i go like what's on the back i need to know what's on the back i've had them for uh cab cal portraits uh, for performances by cab callaway for the opening day of the negro baseball leagues um, incredible, incredible stuff that he painted on. But those are generally the biggest. There's like two or three that are larger than that, but not many. They're like historical the documents, the aren't they, really? Oh, my God. Yeah, amazing. Um, and that show at the Smithsonian, if you, I don't know if you saw it, but it it literally just blew my mind. And I'd seen his work. You know, I've been dealing with his work since 1981, and but this show was like three years ago, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm confused time-wise with COVID. I can't quite figure out where mm -hmm. I am. Uh, but it was 150 drawings, and it was so beautifully curated by Leslie Umberger. And the text is so respectful. It's historic, and it teaches, you know, you learn about who he was, how he ended up where he was. Um, it's, it's very deep. And actually... 
the movie that was made to accompany that uh, is just getting its, I think it's just released this week nationally. It's called Chasing Ghosts. And it's by um, uh, Jeff Wolf, Jeffrey Wolf. And that was, that was screened at the opening of that exhibition. It was spectacular. And how many works of his are known to exist? And like, how there's come, because, sorry. No, there's about 1,200, 12, 12 to 1,400. So in his case, they were preserved and like looked after. So who, who was it? Like, how come they're, because like you well, were mentioning, like a lot of things get, get thrown away or destroyed. Well, he had the he had the very very good fortune. It doesn't happen. You have to think about the fact that this has happened with Ramirez and with Trailer, and a few other people. He had the good fortune of a single person finding him, believing in him, and literally buying every single work that he ever made. Wow. Uh, for so that was Charles Shannon. So from nineteen and we, if you look at the date of a Bill Trailer, they always say nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty two. Uh, that's when Shannon collected his work. And after 42, one of his kids takes him to Detroit. Uh, we, I mean, can only suppose that he continued making work that didn't survive. He came back, ultimately he came back to Montgomery and did some more work, didn't survive. Um, but Shannon preserved the 1200 drawings. Although I've known, I've known of other collectors who, ran into trailer on the street and bought from him. Mm -hmm. uh, but that those are, uh, you know, fewer and farther between. Do you think the but work... Charles Shan Sorry, do you think the work would have changed for the artist knowing that there's a collector that's buying everything? Do you think that can change an artist's style? It definitely can. It can definitely change an artist. I don't think it would definitely... I don't think it would have changed him at all. Uh, there are a lot of artists that, you know... Uh, another a friend of mine back in the day said, you know, when there's, when this started to become a thing and people were like, oh, we're going to go down and see so-and-so and we're going to buy, you know, there were busloads from like the Museum of American Folk Art would take us bus, a bus trip through the South and they'd stop at all the known uh, artists places and everybody would get off the bus and buy a bunch of work. And, you know, this friend said his work was really interesting until he started forging himself. You know, and that's right. what they, that's what they did. You know, like uh, the great Jack Savitsky, who was a, who was a really interesting artist in the '40s and '50s. You know, gets on the cover of Bert Hempel's first big book, and you know that's a Jack Savitsky painting. And from that point on, that's the Jack Savitsky painting that you got, right? I mean, he just kept making that painting over and over and over again. So uh, performing, so, yeah, performing what yeah. what's expected of them. Yeah, I mean, because we have expectations about. Um, aesthetics in art and they're different from from a lot of artists you know when people start paying attention to their work and you know i don't have any i don't really have a problem with that i just think it's you know a responsibility as a curator and somebody who helps people build collections that they understand what work they're buying you know like mm. contemporary artists do the same thing we call them multiples right and you know it's like uh, it's, you know, it's just a form of making a lot more money, really. Do you think there's a difference in collectors of self-taught art and contemporary art? Uh, yeah, um, there are some, there are some differences, but, um, we're, we're, we're actually way more interested in people who are collecting contemporary 
and contemporary self-taught artists uh, and merging those two, those two collections. Yeah. Um, mm, so exciting that dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you have a, you have definitely different dialogue with, uh, with some of the self-taught collectors. I mean, some of them are encyclopedic, you know, they want, you know, 20 of every artist that's got a name. And I, I you know, to me, that doesn't make any sense. I, d I don't like all of the artists equally and I don't have them in my collection. You know, I have, I have oceanic sculpture. I have African sculpture. I have rocks. Um, I have, <laughs> uh, and I have contemporary artists and I have contemporary self-taught artists. So, <clears throat> and I think they have a wonderful dialogue with one another. hundred percent. Well, I, I live with a lot of, uh, contemporary artists and self-taught artists and it's, it's an amazing thing. Like Shinichi Sawada, I think is an amazing sculptor from Japan that we've talked about before. Yep. And Ms. Lidis Castilla Pedrosa, who's uh, a non-verbal artist from Cuba. She's amazing. She makes these oh, is it, the cutouts with the sticky tape going around oh, them. Oh, I have one. I have one of those. <laughs> yes, I have one of those. <laughs> I, I bought. Know. I bought. I bought one of those about six years ago. Yeah. I have a, a, a little small one. Yes, yeah, I've I got one like never, a muscle man by her. I think they're incredible. Yeah, I have. A, I have Yes. I have a muscle man too. Yeah, amazing. That would look like us, John. Yeah. But um let's do you have, do you have a Martin do you have a Martin a Martin Martin Mullen? No, not yet. I've been looking at Mark no, Marlin's Marlin, work. Marlin. We saw him at the Whitney Biennial. So was incredible. And again, yeah. Marlon Mullen being in the Whitney Biennial wow. with all them artists and having that conversation. And it wasn't said like about, you know, Marlon Mullen's nonverbal. It was no, it was just like he's, he's. No, Marlon Mullen is here. He's what, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And that was brilliant, so brilliant. brilliant. That was yeah. incredibly I, important. I've, I've, I've uh, uh, over the last 10 years, really paid attention to uh, what Matthew Higgs has done. Mm. Uh, at White Columns, and I first saw Marlon's work there, like or at NADA in Miami. I'm eight years ago, and then Jasmine started showing it. I bought four paintings from Jasmine's show. Um, then Amy and Jasmine showed him at the Outsider Fair about six, seven years ago, mm -hmm. and I was like, "Oh, I want to buy another one," because I sold two of the ones that I'd purchased or three, I guess I still have, I have one from that first group. And they were like, no, we're going to, we're only selling them to collectors. And I said, okay, well, if there's anything left at the end of the show, I get to buy it. So the one painting that I wanted was the painting that was left. And it oh. was so spectacular. It was the Andy Warhol, Marilyn Monroe painting, breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking one of his best paintings ever. So I had it at home. I got it framed. I brought it home. It was hanging in my wall. I got a call from a very, very important collector. And he said, I understand you have that Warhol, Maryland painting. And I said, I do. And he said, would you consider selling it to me? And so I, I did sell it to him because his collection is so much more visible than mine. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was way more important for him to have it than for me to have it. However, I got as a replacement, <laughs> I got the black and white painting that he did of the cover of the, um, oh, I got a blanking on the name of this photographer. It was a show that was at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and he did a cover of the catalog, the painting of, he did a painting of the catalog cover. I'm totally blanking on the artist, the photographer's name. Anyhow, so I now have that, and I have a, um, an art form cover that he did of a Jonathan, Jonathan Borofsky painting. Mm. 
Awesome. Yeah. I love those ones. Oh, so good. Um, Russell actually took me to the Whitney uh, Biennial and I got to see his work for the first time in person and I just absolutely love them. I think they're yeah, extraordinary. I, so do I, everyone I, check it out if you don't they know. Just get, they just get better and absolutely. better. I mean, yeah. But he just looks, uh, at the ma- he looks at magazines, like art-based magazines, like catalogues, and then he takes the what he's seeing and in his own way interprets that through paint on these canvases. Yeah. So he has this kind of abstracted version of what he's seeing in these covers and it's it's really poppy. So this Andy Warhol relevance because it feels like he's looking at commercialization but through the art world and then he's doing it with his own narrative. It's so wonderful. They're so kind of brilliant. I know. Visually arresting. Yeah. So I, 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 I just keep, I keep buying but I'm more selective. I just... I just got another great self-taught artist's painting at an auction. I couldn't believe nobody bid on it. It was by Pauline Simon. Nobody knows who she is really, unless you were in Chicago and were part of the imagist movement. Mm -hmm. So this painting belonged to Sue Ellen Rocha and she died and her paint, her collection came up for sale and Pauline, Pauline Simon's painting was in, was in the sale and I got it. No one, no one really bid against me. And it is, I mean, it's just one of my current most favorite things. So it's called The Egyptians. I'd have to look that up and then put that on our Instagram. 1970, Pauline Simon. Okay. It's so beautiful. If we can't find an image, then give us one. Oh, yeah. And you look at it, you kind of see, you see her, how closely related the Chicago images are to some of these people like, like Yoakam, like Ramirez, but yeah. Pauline Simon's a sleeper and not too many people know about her. Well, they will Good now. Tip. They will now. We're going to check, check Pauline's work out. <laughs> now, they're only, I think there are only about 70 of them. So <laughs> <laughs> You're located in Philadelphia, obviously, and that's where your gallery is. But, um, you know, we were talking about art that gets destroyed or lost or abandoned and then, you know, is lost forever in a way. Can you tell us about the story of the Philadelphia Wireman quickly? Sure. And, and about how that was abandoned and then discovered and... Post- right posthumously discovered, yeah. There's, yeah. Right behind my shoulder, there's a group mm. of them. So um, it was 1983 or 84. Um this woman was working for, for me. Um, and she was sort of part of the hipster Philadelphia scene. Um, there, there was a really hot band called bunny drums. Uh, that guy who was the lead singer of that band bought the first Howard Finster from me. Um, when Howard came to Philadelphia for his opening at the Art Alliance, he played with the bunny drums. He played the banjo. <laughs> they were like just blown away. Anyhow, it was this sort of tight circle of people who had been at or taught at Philadelphia College of Art. And so my assistant said, oh, you know, this friend of mine um, found these things in the trash and they're really interesting. And I think you should take a look at them. She said, he said, she said he's been giving them to us as gifts, and, but I can get him to bring in some. So he shows up at the gallery and he's got like these talisman things. I mean, anybody that knows anything about African art knows about Inkise. And Inkise were these, there, there are two types of Inkise. There's the large standing figures that get pierced with nails and, you know, uh, activate the magic power of that sculpture. But that same culture also made handheld personal Inkise objects. 
And these were like, oh my God, that's what these are. So we started negotiating with him and he said he was going to sell them all to us. So he sold us 650 of them. And I have Polaroid photographs of them all laid out on the gallery floor. And um, it was, I was like, this is seriously nuts. You know, like, no, no. I mean, we were selling some pretty nutty things, but this was nutty for, even for me. And I thought, well, you know, that's cheap enough. And, you know, I like them. That's all that matters. And we did a little tiny show. Uh, I called a few of my friends and I said, oh, we've got this stuff. It's so great. Uh, and they, everybody wanted to do a show. So we like, we allotted the first group. And I, I took, I took 300 of them and I gave, I divided them up into groups of 50 and we did 50 at various different places. Kevin Morris did a show. Uh, this guy in, in Sweden did a show. Um, Richard Polsky, who's a great, uh, now great art writer, uh, did a show in San Francisco and everything sold. They, they were like $75 to $150 and we didn't get any back and we sold all the ones in our gallery. And I was like, oh my God, first of all, I made the big, this is a really big mistake. I sold all these great pieces and being bam, right? And because I just didn't think it would happen. And so then we started being more serious about them. I got Robert Ferris Thompson to come down and look at them. And then he ultimately wrote about them. He did a fantastic lecture about them in New York City, which was like the who's who of the art world was there. It was like David Byrne and Tim Rollins and KOS and, um, uh, oh, geez, I can't remember. Um, uh, Jonathan Demme. It was this. It was this. That was part of the group back then, and and Robert Ferris Thompson just tied them into this sort of whole history of African culture in the United States. So things like memory jugs, if you know what those are, uh, was a form of grave decoration in you know in African cemeteries. Um, these are remotely similar to that, right? But he said, and he said that. Robert Ferris Thompson said things like this have been found singularly in many different African-American communities, but never had there been a group of 650. Mm. Meanwhile, years later, the guy's dying and he says, I wasn't really honest about how many I found. I have 500 more. <gasps> so it turns out that there were like 1,150 or 1,200 pieces. He started giving us groups of them. And let me tell you, the ones that he kept for himself were phenomenal. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think Russell, I sent you the catalog. Mm. Well, we really bonded over it together. And I, I was so excited because you were so excited to talk. You were so excited anyway to talk about art, but you felt really excited to talk about <laughs> the wire man. And it felt, and these are all kind of like, they're, they're the size of your hand outstretched. Some of them or fist shaped. They, they all vary in size, but they're very domestic size. I mean, they're, there are there are a couple dozen that are you know oh, right. more massive, but those are very rare. But there's one in the catalog where it's the wires all wrapped around a baseball, it's like one I just wow. think is phenomenal. And, and so these <clears throat> works, you know, it, we don't know who this man, woman, person was at all. They were found posthumously. Who threw For, them out? Why? Why right. they were being made? That's what adds to the kind of magic of these sculptures. Well, I mean, there's there. You know, you can put together a certain amount of information about 
about where and how and probably who made them or probably what kind of person made them. So they were found in what was one of Philadelphia's oldest inhabited African-American community, right? Which unfortunately for, for that community was very close to center city, Philadelphia, and the real estate became very valuable. And so there was, you know, it, that, that neighborhood was taken over by developers. And so it went very quickly from being an African-American community to an upper middle-class white community. And there were a lot of houses that were bought up by developers that were empty and they were being, all the junk that was in them was being put out on the street. That's what happened to this. That's how these were found. There were, there were 12 boxes filled with these sculptures sitting in the trash. And it just so happened this artist from Philadelphia College of Art, which is only a few blocks actually from where they were found, um, was on his way home and he saw one of the boxes was tipped over into the street and they have a lot of reflective elements in them and he saw them and was like, oh, these are kind of interesting. And they picked all of them up and put them in their car and took them home. And that was in like 1983-ish. And then we got, then they were sold to us in 85. And then much later, the second group was sold to us sort of uh, probably in the two, early 2000s. And then he has subsequently died. And you've got these into incredible collections and, and, and like gallerists themselves. I know that Matthew Marks has two in his bedroom. Oh, a museum. You've got them into museum. <laughs> he's got more. He's got more than, he's got more than two. <laughs> I, he always, he, Matthew said the nicest thing about them. He said, he has them in his bedroom because it, it reminds him when he gets up in the morning that you don't have to have a famous name attached to something for it to be a beautiful piece mm. of art. And I've always thought that was really great way to look it at is. them. Yeah. You've also taught, taught me another way to look at art is, is your mantra is kind of just to look and remember. And in some ways, when you remember it, then gives yeah. you the foundation for a deep historical understanding of art. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think as artists, we kind of all should do that or do do that to some degree. I don't know if you, did you read Will Pim's article? Oh, Oh, so he, he sort Will really got me. I mean, he was, he was fun to work with. Um, And he, he put into words, I think, the way I am, you know, which is, you know, like I'm, you know, obsessed with books that are going to teach me something. I mean, a lot of things that I'm in love with, I haven't ever seen some of them. Uh, most of them, if I'm really, really in love with them, I try to make a way to see them. But um, so I travel, a lot of our traveling I do is through books. Um, I make sure that I, you know, if possible, get to major exhibitions that I, you know, that like, I didn't get to see Magicians de la Terre, but I saw, you know, both the Maurice Tuckman shows, um, Oh, other artists whose work I think is just phenomenal, like Florian Stettheimer, and uh, you know, they're just the list goes on and on. Yeah. I, you know, well, that essay that William wrote was really beautiful, and it's called "See It All," and it's on on the Adams and Ullman website. I think it's on JTT. I think it might be on your website. But he says in it that if we ever meet you, we have to ask you about the eighties. So we're going to ask you about the <laughs> in some ways we in some ways we have done. You already have. I, I gave I gave you my big one of my big eighties stories. The the, the uh, that was that was a good one. The the eighties, yeah. That 
Um, there, I don't know yeah. what he's referring do, to. Do you feel like there's been ebbs and flows <laughs> through, you know, like you were saying earlier on, like the, the artist goes in and out of favour. Do you feel like there's ebbs and flows with where we're at now with how people are approaching collecting art and how institutions are approaching collecting art? Um, some, in some ways, I think institutions collect in a in the same way always. You know, it's sort of like something happens and then they have to rectify where they've not been, where they should have been and they haven't been. Like, you know, they, most, most museums don't have um, very definitive collections of self-taught artists, right? Uh, but now with them all trying to add African-American women, um, you know, Latina artists, a lot of that's, that a lot of this is, is going to fill that need. And so we, you know, you start getting, you start getting museums approaching you for certain things. But I mean, the, the classic story of this, of course, is, is, um, you know, is uh, William Edmondson. So William Edmondson, um, who is per perhaps my favorite artist, um, was the first African-American artist to ever have a show at a major museum. And he had a show at MoMA in 1937 because he was discovered by Edward Weston and Louise Dahl Wolf. And they sent their photographs of his work to um, Alfred Barr and Rene Darnacourt, who were then co-curators at MoMA. And they made an exhibition for him in 1937, but they never acquired a work. And until fairly recently, that was not rectified. And regardless of how much effort we put into trying to get them to do that, it just didn't happen. And then finally, you know, with, you know, everybody sort of on their case about why don't you have this artist in your collection, they finally went out and did buy a piece. But they passed, you know, they missed out on some of the most incredible works that I've ever had the opportunity to show and sell. Um, yeah, it was just terrible. Uh, we did not have the same experience with the Philadelphia Museum was always very supportive, although it took 10 years of negotiating of how it was going to be accessioned into the museum. But Anne Darnacourt, who was Renee Darnacourt's daughter, grew up with the understanding of this material. Her father when she was 14 years old, gave her a bill trailer for her birthday of a horse, which he bought at the Brooklyn Museum art shop. Uh, so there were, there, you know, Charles Shannon had sent trailers to New York to try and get shows for him. And some of them ended up in the Brooklyn Museum uh, art store. And, and Renee Darnacourt bought one for, for Anne. And when we had our show in 81 or, you know, mm -hmm. 81, 82, Anne came in the gallery and she said, oh my God, I've got a drawing by this artist. What's his name? And I saw the Bill Trailer, and this is who he is. And she was like, oh, my dad gave this to me when I was 14. That's now in the Philadelphia Museum that's Collection. So nice. Um, so nice. So this show that's yeah. on at the minute, Dear John, which is uh, like an anniversary um, tribute honoring you show, it's built around an artist that we've touched on briefly called James Castle. And it'd be really nice to talk more about his practice because it feels like he's an artist that you are really championing and this and the works that are in this show are phenomenal and he's fascinating and brilliant. Yeah. So this like again goes back <clears throat> to the 80s. Uh, I first 
the first awareness of his work, which is very different from what you would think you would see first, is one of his drawing appears in the in the uh, Herbert Wade Hempel book, Folk Art and Artists. It's a little drawing of text, right? And that's not what you immediately think of when you think of Castle. So I saw it there. Then there was another show in New York, which I also have the catalog for, a little catalog. It was a, you know, a pamphlet, basically. It was called Signs and Symbols, and it had Sister Gertrude Morgan and a bunch of other self-taught artists, and James Castle text works in it. Again, text. So I thought, James Castle, that's what he does, text. And nobody knew how to access to access that work. And then 1977, we were setting up at the Outsider Fair, the one good thing I'll say about that happened that year. Um, and I saw Jackie Chris from J. Chris Gallery in Boise setting up her booth. And it was like, I didn't even know who the artist was. I just knew that they were the most phenomenal things I'd ever seen. And I, she says, it was James Castle. And I said, oh, that name sounds really familiar. Anyhow, I love the love, 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 love the work. And all my clients have always asked me to tell them what to buy next. And this is what I'm going to tell them mm -hmm. too. And we literally sold, I mean, I literally either bought or sold most of that exhibition that year, that year. So then the next couple of months later, I said, oh, we're going to the Chicago Art Fair, which I think was in May then. So that outside art fair was in January and May. We we're going to do outside, we we're doing Chicago Art Fair. So I called Jackie and I said, Oh, I want to show uh, James Castle at the Chicago Art Fair, and she goes, "Oh, I don't, I don't really like art fairs, and I don't know it." And I was like, "No, no, it's going to be really great." And and I said, "We're going to show him with Philip Guston drawings and Joseph Cornell sculptures and collages." And she was like, "And she goes, Joseph Cornell," and I go, "Oh my God, this rube from like." <laughs> Boise, Idaho doesn't know who Joseph Cornell is, right? <laughs> and so I get on my pretentious hi-hat and I start explaining Joseph Cornell to her in the most, I was, it was like so embarrassing <laughs> and into it, so into it. And she got, she finally, she says, John, I'm going to stop you now. And I'm going to tell you that before I opened J. Chris Gallery, I was a curator at LA, at LACMA in LA. And I was like, well, why did you like question, like seemingly question why I would, sh you know, who Joseph Cornell was? And she said, I wasn't questioning who Joseph Cornell was. She said, I was just stunned that you thought to show his work with him. And she said, of course we will, you know, lend you work for that show. So we, I don't know how many we sold at the Chicago. I think we might have sold a hundred drawings. We had them up. The, they resonated so beautifully, the constructions with Cornell and the drawings with Gustin drawings from the, you know, from the late 60s. Mm. And people were just like, and they were like pretty cheap, you know, like they were like the double-sided sit drawings were like $500 maybe. Mm. And we sold out and, and I, like we, we had to call Jackie and say, you've got to send us more work. And we were literally, we literally had FedEx envelopes with his drawings in our closet. We, we, we didn't have the drawings. We had photo, we had, we had Xeroxes of them. And we were, and my friend was 
cutting the information off the bottom and sliding the images out underneath the door. And we'd show them a Xerox image. You think, like, we'll take that. It was, it was wow. absolutely insane. But I, I, I absolutely fell in love with this work and got, uh, you know, obsessed with it. I, I own, I own quite a few of them. Uh, well, for me, uh, quite a few, I have like five or six. Oh. And, and I try to have one of every, I tried to have one that represented the many different aspects of his work. So I have a great construction. I have two fantastic double-sided drawings. Uh, I have a text piece. I have a book. Um, oh, sorry. Um, anyhow, I one of the early people that we sold the work to was Ann Percy, who uh, then ultimately ended up doing the show at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Um, but for for some reason, I can't even remember why. I guess because I felt I needed to. I I flew out to Boise. I'm not a I'm really not a big traveler, and uh, I flew to Boise to see everything. And um, one of the things that I wanted to see most was where he had lived, and because I wanted to understand the landscape drawings. And when you go to where he lived and you look at the drawings, you understand that there's not not only the intensely beautiful, but there's all kinds of editing that's going on. So like he didn't draw the mountains for some reason, you know, like they were just edited out of these drawings. Um, and there were things like the little, the little figures that he did, the little friends that we, you know, the family called the friends. Um, so I said, so Jackie said, well, let's go, we're going to go one more place. And she said, I'm going to go show you where uh, the family graveyard is which is up the side of this huge mountain. And we drive up there, scared the crap out of me. <clears throat> and um, we get to this graveyard, in the, like halfway up this mountain where there's a clearing, a forest clearing. And there are all these simple tombstones all surrounded with like handmade metal gates or, you know, picket like fences. And I suddenly go like, oh my, these tombstones look like the friends, you know? And then, you know, there was like, there were drawings that he did that were, that always fascinated me because I couldn't understand where the imagery came from. There were drawings of baby prams, right? And in the cemetery, what possibly, I mean, one of the most moving things I think I've ever seen, and it still gives me goosebumps, there was a little tiny gravestone and it just said, the, and the text on the gravestones are, the, are often the text, the font that he uses in his drawings, right? And on this, tombstone is a, just says baby, oh. right? And instead of having an iron fence around that tombstone, it has an a, a, a iron pram around this little tombstone for a baby. I was just like, oh my God. I just, I mean, I lost that's it. Where he's, totally that's where all his references like, came from. Uh, uh, it's wow. a lot of where his early references are. I mean, later he's, you know, he, he grows and does, you know, starts yeah. doing different things when the family moves from Garden Valley into Boise. Mm -hmm. the, the work changes somewhat, but and he gets older and the work what, changes. What I love as about well. his story is the fact that um, he, he's a, a, a guy that whose family really supported his art, and he sort of became famous yeah. in the fifties because his nephew showed his work to one of his art school instructors who recognized. That, that was, was here in Philadelphia. Right? So they're, they're, that art school instructor recognized yes. at that moment, this is really good art. And and they're made, as you said earlier on, with, right. with right. soot and spit 
and like ha- yes. handmade tools right. and then he makes these very architectural base works on like matchbox covers and envelopes and packaging and stuff so yeah all, all found material yeah. no this is amazing yeah. but there's an amazing one about the interiors and there's an interior of uh like a stove which produced the soot which he then used to create the drawings of the interior of the stove so it has this kind of cyclical and the other the other amazing thing of that is the other side of that drawing would be the other view of the room often Wow. So if you, there's a new book that just came out on James Castle, and it's absolutely phenomenal. It's called Memory Palace, and it is so exquisite. And there are drawings in there that are these huge, pan, where he's like pieced together pieces of paper and made these huge panoramic landscapes, the likes of which I have never seen. I mean, absolutely wow. stunning, stunning, stunning. Well, something that I think Rob would really, really appreciate is the way that he also considered protecting his work and he made these bundled sewn boxes that he sort of like were kind of like chambers that he would then store his drawings in and they they themselves are these sculptural like amulets of magic yeah. they're brilliant <laughs> but and often in in these bundles would be like a group of drawings that are all meant to be seen together so like 12 drawings that make a grid of a landscape from all different views of how you would see that landscape. And you have to understand that he's not out drawing in the landscape. He's drawing from his head. He is working inside of a little cabin uh, and he's remembering what he's seen. And he's, I mean, it, it, it's just incredible. And, you know, he was profoundly deaf. So he never learned to read or write or speak or sign. Um, and his, yes, his family supported him. And very interestingly, when we when the show was at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the last day of the show, there was a talk. <clears throat> and um, this whole group of people came up from Gallaudet, which is, which is the school for the deaf in Washington, D.C. And it was so incredible to listen to these people talk about James Castle as a deaf person and perception and how being profoundly deaf. I mean, there's many degrees of deafness, right? Profound deafness means that you never hear any sound from the time you're born. So you have no, you have no concept of sound, right? Which is impossible for us to yeah. conceive, right? You, you just, I mean, you can't conceive it. And then there are people who have impaired hearing to various degrees. And there, there were a couple of profound deaf people in the audience. And they were, it was so interesting to listen to them and how they were taught to conceptualize what sound sounded like and how they saw what James Castle was doing in some of his drawings as elements of that. Wow. Um, I, I mean, it was, it was like, oh my God, this is so wow. incredible. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's incredible. The more I look at his work, the deeper I get into it. Every time I look at it, uh, I learn something different. Um, it's, it's just, it's, I think it's one of the great bodies of work in America of the 20th wow. century. And as your collectors that were infuriated with you before, telling them not to buy a Bill Trailer or Martin Ramirez, James Castle, you're saying is like, and then they're not cheap now. They are, they are a lot of money. But the, he's the artist that you're saying, right? This is who. If you if you were angry at me before, this is who you need to support now. Yeah, twenty twenty three years oh, ago, right, I was right. saying that. It's like, 
and now it's like you now they're just you know like you know masterpieces so um you know unfortunately you know a lot of these a lot of those artists from the 20th century have gotten priced out of sort of entry level collectors which i i feel bad about and you know um but obviously i don't have any control over that we you know we have to i mean we currently represent the family's private collection and which is yeah. pretty awesome um but you know the price is the price and you know we have to totally. we have to honor that and and i you know it, he's an interesting it's a very interesting in 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 his case because of the support his family gave him but they also were very smart you know after after he died that work wasn't really available for the marketplace and his his niece Jerry Garrow who who we worked with for a long time uh was incredibly smart made a lot of money in real estate and Boise, but she also set up the foundation that protected James Castle's legacy and his work. And so when the work came back to market for the very first time, it was owned by the family. The family benefited, you know, greatly from everything that was being sold. So, and uh, they, you know, they all did quite well, depending on their position in the family. So it was, it was a family corporation foundation thing. And they got distributions of the money when it came in. Amazing. And I guess for, for collectors who are entry level or whatever, um, there's always new artists yeah. to be discovered. And there's lots there of artists are. that are just as important who might <laughs> yeah. not even How be How do you yet. find so new artists? Do you visit that studios? That is the joy, isn't it? <laughs> I, do not do to, I do not do studio visits uh, anymore. I, I, well, I never really was comfortable doing that. Uh, I, the only people, artists I ever went to see were Howard Finster, um, I saw Lee Goaty once on the street. That was really embarrassing. Uh, that's an 80s story. Um, Can we have that story? She's a photographer, right? Uh, well, she was. She did paintings and did photography as photos as well. So she was like part of the Chicago sort of. Everybody wanted Lee Goaty. She was. She was the eccentric street person on the streets of Chicago. She used to paint on the steps of the Art Institute. Uh, and everybody in the 70s and 80s had her work, except for me. And I went to Chicago every summer. We had family, I had family that lived there. And I was like, I've got to find Lee Goaty. I've got to find Lee Goaty. I've got to find Lee Goaty. And I go out looking for her. I never did find her. So I'm... Walking down uh, Michigan Avenue, if you know Chicago, Michigan Avenue is sort of like Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue in New York. And it's a Neiman Marcus store had these ledges that you could sit on. And there was Lee Goaty doing a painting on the Neiman Marcus ledge. And I went up to her and I said, oh, Lee, I love your work. I really want to buy one. And she just shouted at me. It's not finished. Go away. <laughs> And so I, my friend lived around the corner. I went around. I said, oh, I found, I finally found Lee Cody. Um, I asked her if she'd sell me her painting, but I didn't know what to tell her. I'd pay her for it. She said, well, the last time I bought one for her, I gave her $30 and she slapped me across the face. I was like, oh, great. I'm, I'm so not into confrontation. I'm like, the, I'm like, no, thank you. So I go back and I go and she says, it's not finished. It's not finished. 
So I go into Neiman Marcus and I'm like literally standing loitering and Neiman Marcus watching her. And I finally decided, you know, this is enough. I go out and I go like, oh, I see it's finished. She said, yes. How much are you paying me for it? I said, $50. And she goes, it's $500. And I said, oh, I, I didn't realize your paintings were that much. Um, um, and she starts yelling at me and everybody, it's now rush hour, streets are mobbed. She's yelling at me that I'm trying oh. to steal her painting. Oh my God. And this whole crowd of people gather around us, right? Meanwhile, she'd just been written up in People Magazine, right? And this one woman learns in and she goes, oh, I just saw you in People Magazine. And he's like, yes, and we're going to hold an auction for this painting. And she goes, how much will somebody give me for my beautiful painting? And the woman who's like seen her in People Magazine says, I wouldn't give you 50 cents for it. It's really <laughs> ugly. And she, and she turns to me and she said, how much did you say you had? I said, $50. She said, sold for $50. Amazing. <laughs> oh, my. And the crowd, and the crowd dispersed. <laughs> and I was, and I was mortified. Oh. The most I've ever paid oh for a painting. God. And you still got that. You live with that still. 50. Wow. I still have that. Yeah. And then I got another one. I bought another photograph of hers, which I really love. The paintings I'm not that crazy about. But her photography yeah. is awesome. And I just lent my the photograph that I own to Jasmine's show. And it's a photograph of her in a photo booth with four images. You know how you got a block of four images. Mm. But she's holding the other image that she'd just taken before that. So it's actually eight images of her in this image, this one image. It's so fabulous. I have to check that out. Amazing. Yeah. Well, John, we're going to ask you two questions that we ask every guest that comes on, which you'll know because you've heard Talk Art, you said many times. So the first one is, this is uh, this is going to be fascinating for you as a collector uh, and a dealer and everything. If you could do an art heist, you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, whatever it is, what would it be and why? Well, I narrowed it down to 11. 11 works. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did do my homework. So the first person, the first thing I'd have you steal, <clears throat> or I would steal, is the ivory Benin mask in the British okay. Museum. Oh. And I would take that and I would give it back to Nigeria. Amazing. That's the first thing. The second thing, it would be Any Angel by William yes. Edmondson. It's the only, only person whose work I had and could have bought and I didn't. They were always slightly out of reach for me. I probably could have reached, but I didn't. And I regret that a lot. They're amazing. Yes. So that's sculpture. Painting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hilma yes. off Klimt. Hilma off Klimt. Anything. And you Anything. like the show, The Guggenheim? That was, an, that was a game changer. I, I absolutely yeah. loved that show. But I had seen, I, I think it, it was a, it was a, sort of a visit to old friends thing, but, you know, because I'd seen them 20 years before at the abstract painting show. And, you know, so I, it wasn't that I hadn't seen her work. I just, but that show was yeah. so beautiful. And I, I'm not a huge fan of looking at art in the Guggenheim. It's too slanty oh, right. for me. <laughs> um, 
So another another artist who's there, it turned out there was a bunch oh. in London. So you, you so Maria Sabilia Marin. Yeah. Do you know her work? No. Eighteen uh, from sixteen forty seven. She was born in sixteen forty seven. So there's this incredible book that I totally love, called Voyages, uh, uh, Voyages of Discovery, and it was produced for the National History Museum in London. And she was an artist from Germany, and then ultimately lived in the Netherlands. And these are uh, th uh, watercolors of three years that she spent in Suriname in. Uh, 1699 to 17 to, to, to 1701. And there are these incredible botanical watercolors with crazy insects devouring each other and devouring Amazing. the plants. Oh. But the, the, the book Voyages, I love the book. And there's so much in that book that I think is fantastic. Mm. And, um, it's, if you don't have it, go get a copy. It's, it, it, gives me endless joy. My mum worked at the Natural History Museum when I was a kid. Oh so my God. So for the first 10, really? 10 years of my life, if not a bit more, I used to go behind the scenes there all the time. And um, so you know that she worked on a cook, um, uh, like Cook's Voyage. And, you know, oh, yeah. there were like botanical prints that were made. Some uh, of these are in, some of those are in this Voyages, Voyage of Discovery book. Oh, really? So that's what it's about. So it's the... So many of the works are specimens that are actually in the Natural History Museum mm. and drawings that accompany mm. them. So I, that's why I love the book. So the next piece is it's going to be very mm. hard for you to take to do this because it's comprised of like like uh, Kathy Bradford, you know, wanting the mm. Rothko room. Yeah. This is comparable to that. I want I want Florian Stedheimer's Cathedrals of New York City. Ooh. So no, have you ever seen them. that? No, I, I oh, it's at the Metro Metropolitan yeah. Museum of Art. Yeah, so you know who Florine Stenheimer no. was, right? Yeah. So she was this sort of upper class uh, woman. She and her sister lived in New York. They were part of the group that were friends with Marcel Duchamp and sort of this whole group of you know like important artists that lived in New York City. And Florine Stenheimer, her sister, made this incredible dollhouse. It's unbelievable, but her paintings are the most visionary paintings I think I've ever seen in my life. And the Cathedral of, of New York are four huge paintings. One is called the Cathedral to Art. One is called the Cathedral to Wall Street. One is called Cathedral to Fifth Avenue. And one is called Cathedral to Broadway. And I would die to own those. They are probably amongst my favorite works of art. Russ, there was one guest, I can't remember who it was, but someone came uh, on before Frost. and they wanted just the Fifth Avenue one, I think. It was one of somebody else's art heist, funnily enough. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll have to look into <laughs> who it was. Well, you can't, you can't take one without having them all. There's, it's, a, it's a set. So the, the next thing I want, this would be... John, drawings. this is the longest list we've ever um, had. Go on, yeah. It's amazing. Every, yeah. I, re I, I would really love to have a Shaker Spirit gift drawing. So I don't know if you saw the show or have the catalog from the drawing center called um, Heavenly Visions, Shaker Gift and Spirit Drawings, or Sh Gift and Dance Drawings. So the Shakers in the early or the mid-19th century, these two young girls had a vision from God and they started doing these drawings, which they gifted to people. And then Mother Anne was like, 
this is a travesty. You know, people aren't supposed to be making objects. Anyhow, they got, they only were made for a few years. They're absolutely exquisite. And there's a, the Philadelphia Museum of Art has six of them. They're incredibly rare. Um, I don't know other museums that have them. The Shaker, the Hancock Village and Shaker Village in New York has some. But the one in Philadelphia that I want is called Untitled Sacred Scroll. It's really great. Sacred Squirrel. Uh, or if you scroll. get that. Scroll. S scroll. Okay. Scroll. I like the idea of a sac scroll. So sacred roll. Sacred roll. <coughs> roll. Sorry. Okay. R O L L. Roll. Yeah. Okay. Sacred roll. So then there's two paintings in the Philadelphia Museum of Art also that I really, really want. One is Horace Pippin's uh -huh. Mr. Prejudice, uh, which is an all-time great painting yeah. of his. And the other is a painting that I probably, as an artist, did maybe 200 drawing studies of when I was in school. And it's a, a little bit out of the wheel box, but it's still one of my favorite works of art. And if you come to Philadelphia, I always make you, I always drag people to see it because I think it's an absolute must. It's the Roger Vanderweiden Christ Descent from the Cross. Mm. And it is the best, it's one of the five best paintings in the world, I think. Um, people make pilgrimages to Philadelphia to see it. And it's literally set up like a chapel. And it's, it is mm. the most spiritual drawing or painting I've ever seen. Roger Wyden, what's okay. his name, Roger? Roger Vanderweiden. He was a 15th, 15th century Dutch, you know. Master. Wow. What a list. That's my list. That is an art <laughs> We're going to be I mean, busy, Rob. We're going to need a lot, of, yeah. um, a lot of helicopters, yes. flights, Trucks, all kinds of things. Yeah. Shipping involved. We'll have to work out ways to do it environmentally crates. friendly. Yes. Right. There's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is dreamy. I, on, on the other hand, I could just live with them in books. So I'm, yeah, I'm perfectly happy be with that. Because I've... I've 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 seen all of these things that I've mentioned, so you know they're Lovely. except for the except for the Marins, I've never seen those. So, but they they're you know they're in the Natural History Museum. You go yeah, go yeah. check those out. Awesome. <clears throat> the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favorite color? I don't have a favorite color. Really? I don't. I thought about it. I kept thinking, do I have do I have a favorite color? I, I honestly, I don't. I think I you're really the first don't. person to say that. I love that. Um, you know, like if something is like orange and it's like fantastic, I'm going to love it. If it's, you know, black, I'll, I can love that. I mean, it's like the Mullen painting I bought is black and white. Oh. It's very, it's like they're, he generally doesn't do that. Oh. So it's kind of atypical. And judging by um, your art heist answer, I mean, you probably want every color in the rainbow. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> I, I, we, we, we did cover a lot of colors. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're all, all the colors of the rainbow are in that uh, uh, Florian Stedheim. I liked group. your answer mm. about um, returning the Benin yes. bronze to Nigeria because we were talking to... It's not, the, it's not the... Yeah, it's not the bronzes. I mean, I love the bronzes and I would do that too. Yeah. But the piece that I, I just swoon over... Is the ivory mask? Oh, the ivory mask. That's the, okay. That that's the piece I love. Yeah. I mean, when I saw that, I was in London for Freeze a few years ago, and you know, my director Alex and I went to see. We went on a museum day, and we went, and I'd never seen it in person. Mm. Although when I lectured and taught African art, it was a slide I always showed, mm. and I was just like, I probably stood there for half an hour in front of that piece. Mm. Yeah, it's a sleeper, but it's. Absolutely brilliant, oh, John. John, you are an inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. We, 
absolutely oh, oh dear oh dear, dear John. John you are amazing <laughs> um what a just a legend you are and how amazing to talk to you yeah. and as soon as we can I really want to fly to yeah we want to be dragged around you. As, as you don't like traveling oh, around we will come yeah. to you because we love yeah. traveling yeah um right. I cannot wait oh you know I, person. the other you know I spend about half of my year here now and the other half in Maine and I don't, I don't live too far from Kathy Bradford, but mm. my next door neighbors um, are uh, one of my, one of my next door neighbors is is friends with um, um, like, um, Cummins, uh, Alan Cummings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan Cummings. Oh yeah, yeah. So they're they are, my next door neighbor. One of them is a tenor at the Met, and his partner is was on Broadway with. Uh, with Alan in uh, Cabaret. Is Alan mm. Cumming, actually? Because I always say Cummings. I always get it wrong. I don't know. It's, it's Alan I think Cumming. It's, Cumming, isn't it? it's singular. Yeah. It? yeah. Yeah, singular. Yeah, yeah. He's amazing. I actually went to see Kathy in Maine. I, I went. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah, I had such an amazing. So the time. next time you can come another couple hours up, I'm, I'm totally further up. Wonderful. So, um, and Haystack is on our island, which is a great institution. Mm. Oh, we can't uh, wait. And have you done your New York Times crossword today? I good. have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> good. Good to know. I'm pleased. I'm pleased we crossed that off. I was hoping you'd do. Love that. Yes, I, I, I started doing, you know, I started doing those to deal with dyslexia. Because oh. I was, I, I can't spell and I have a very hard time reading. So I started doing easy crossword puzzles and I've now worked myself up to the times and I feel it quite an accomplishment when gotcha. I You do it every one. day, right? I do. Yeah. Legend. Inspirational. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been such a privilege to spend these few. Uh, oh, it was my pleasure. I'm honored that you asked me. I love it. So. And um, for everyone listening, you can visit, um, well, there's so many different websites to visit, but you need to visit the Adams and Ullman uh, website to see the Dear John exhibition, which runs until April the 17th, 2021, which includes the work of James Castle, who we discussed mm -hmm. earlier, alongside loads of mm -hmm. other artists, contemporary artists. Um, some of them you'll know from Talker, actually, because Catherine Bradford's in it um, mm. as well. And then you can also go to JTT Gallery, where this exhibition is continued, because um, Adams Nolman is in um, Portland, but JTT is in New York, and they've also got an exhibition dedicated to 50 years of John's career. And, and, my and then also you can go to John's Gallery in Philadelphia. So we've got my, my uh, gallery uh, associate director, did an archival dig through our history. And so yeah. that's our contribution to the show. So yeah. it's a lot of old catalogs and price lists and postcards and crazy stuff that, you know. With one of my favorite words ever, ephemera. Ephemera, ephemera. yeah. Yeah, that's ephemera. So that, that, that Backstories exhibition runs until the 24th of April, 2021, yeah, right. at Fleischer Ullman Gallery, yeah. which yeah. is in Philadelphia. So, yeah, they are the three shows you need to see. And also, we'll be linking on Instagram and posting many, many, many images. Many images, my God. Episode. Just the art heist, <laughs> just the the art heist alone is just like, that's episode. a full grid. Yeah. <laughs> you, should, you, should see, you should see my library. We send us a picture of your library <laughs> yeah, and we'll post it. We'd love to. Russ, I, I think oh, that yeah? network, I, I think in, I can't remember totally, but it might have been Caroline Kuhn who chose it or Kembra oh, really? Fowler. It's one okay. of the two, but it was one of their art hosts. I'm going to look into it after listening okay. today. Thanks so much, uh, John. I, oh, you're welcome. 
You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com